The Diabetes Podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking to your doctor. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Diabetes Podcast. I'm Dr. Garapano and with me is Dr. Grady Donahoe. And today we are talking about leaky gut and type 1 diabetes. Oh, yeah. Grady, what are your thoughts on leaky gut? Well, I have a lot of thoughts on leaky gut, <laughs> which is why this might be a longer podcast than we expect. Because mm. um, this is a very important topic because, I mean, I think it's a common um, talking point for a lot of people in the health field right now, as far as just overall gut health and how it impacts pretty much your overall health in general. So kind of most people's philosophy in the functional medicine world is start with the gut and then go from there. Cause that's kind of your foundation as far as your health goes. Right. And I think it makes a lot of sense in both our minds to start with the gut and, and go from there. But with such a intro to anyone and everyone listening, uh, this will be a much more science uh, based uh, discussion um, than some of our more bro-y uh, related buddy, buddy type episodes. Uh, so we're also going to kind of talk about one paper that we thought was significant and kind of easy to talk about in a podcast format um, on the subject. But yeah, no, you, I agree with you. You're absolutely right. It's such an important conversation. And I think the validity of what is leaky gut and and it being a real thing continues to grow um, every day, every month, every year. Um, mm-hmm. as time passes. So, um, so how do, how do we want to start this Grady? Um, well, we can talk about what is leaky gut and what does that mean? Sure. So, uh, leaky gut or what might be a more appropriate or more scientific accurate, uh, name is intestinal permeability, right? So leaky gut is the idea that our gut has, uh, it's made up of cells. Um, you know, our intestines and in between those cells are certain amounts of structures that are supposed to be barriers and limit uh, what goes in and out. Because when you actually think about your digestion, uh, this might be a a weird concept for most to think about is our digestion is actually outside of our body. Mm -hmm. We eat food, it goes into our mouth, into our esophagus. And that's like a donut, right? So think of your mouth hole as a donut hole and it, it, <laughs> of course you use donut <laughs> well it's the best is absolutely the best way to describe something like this so don't worry i haven't had donuts in a while <laughs> and uh um so as you eat it goes through your mouth down your esophagus to your stomach it still hasn't entered you it's still on the outside of you and as it continues to digest through your stomach and your intestines it's still in the middle of that donut hole and then it continues down your intestines through your rectum and out your bowels. And in that pathway is 100% not inside of you. It's, in ca- it's enclosed around you. But when you eat and any food that goes through your mouth and out your bottom is never actually inside you. Yeah. Yeah. So it's essentially, it's in your GI tract, but it's not in your actual system. It's not in your, inside your body, in your tissues, in your cells. Um, so that ultimately comes down to your gut lining being a semi-permeable barrier 
And by semi-permeable, I mean it is selectively bringing things back, bringing things in that should be, and keeping things out that should not be in your system. And so, when we start having hyper permeability, so more permeability than what is normal, which is kind of what we're talking about here with leaky gut, then you are getting things in that should not be coming in. So. Um, when we start having hyperpermeability, that usually means that the tight junctions that are between cells are now becoming looser and allowing bigger things into the system that should not be in, or not necessarily bigger things, but just things that should not be getting in because otherwise the cell would never bring it in otherwise. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so um, when those tight junctions start to loosen up and start to break apart, you're getting things in that shouldn't be getting in. And therefore your immune system says, Hey, you should not be here. Get out of here. And it starts attacking it. Um, and then that's kind of where this whole process starts is when your immune system starts to get involved. Cause obviously as type one diabetics, as autoimmune patients, we are worried about our immune system and how that's impacting our development of said condition. Cause that's right. largely, largely by the immune system. Yeah, so you just made a, you know, a, a good leap and I wanted to connect those dots and reiterate the importance of what you just said. So as we describe what leaky gut is, the reason why we want to talk about it is because there's a connection between this condition of increased intestinal permeability with those tight junctions and autoimmunity. Mm-hmm. And, and one can think, and, and that's what research is trying to figure out how and why one is related to the other. How is a leaky gut state related to your autoimmune state, which what you just said, as type one diabetics, we all are. So the under, the more we can understand about leaky gut, we are essentially adding weight to a possible mechanisms and possible reasons why somebody might become type one diabetic in their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And once you can find the reason for developing a certain condition, it becomes a lot easier to try and develop a way to then help with that condition, or maybe sometimes reverse that condition. Right, right. Um, bold words said on podcast, reverse yeah. condition. <laughs> uh, so, um, so essentially those tight junctions between the intestinal cells are physical proteins, they're physical barriers, and those can be broken down through a variety of reasons. And there's a variety of of hypotheses out there on what could or could not cause, you know, this increased intestinal permeability. So mm-hmm. uh, we actually found a, a paper. Um, this is from 2006 in the diabetes journal. So this is on the American diabetes association, and this is in their diabetes journal um, entitled zonulin upregulation is associated with increased gut permeability and subjects with type one diabetes and their relatives. Now, we're not going to go line by line like we've tried to do in the past or anything like that. We're going to try to be much more uh, communicative about this this paper and just kind of talk about what this is. And yeah, it's from 2006. It's, you know, maybe 15 years old-ish, um, you know, around that time frame. And there's, but even in the past five, 10 years, year, two years, there's a lot of connections between intestinal permeability and leaky gut. But this one in particular, I think, explains a lot of things really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because it looks at several different um, scenarios and also um, different markers for it as well. Mm-hmm. So, do you want to maybe explain 
Zonulin before we get it, get into um, some of the things about the paper. Yeah. So Zonulin, um, two words that kind of go hand in hand with a leaky gut or hyperpermeability is Zonulin and occludin. Um, mm-hmm. There's some other molecules that are involved, but those are kind of the two, you know, catch words that most people are going to focus in on um, because they're the big players in this whole process. And so occludins are essentially the proteins that are holding that tight junction together. Um, whereas zonulin um, is a protein that is um, involved in the disassembly of those tight junctions and mm-hmm. kind of leads towards that um, intestinal permeability. Right. Right. So um, essentially the general hypothesis is the more zonulin you have, the more breakdown of tight junctions, in this case of clutin, but there's very various other proteins. It's not mm-hmm. just a one, one bridge, one brand name of a bridge in the tight yeah. junction. Um, you know, you break down the tight junctions that increases the space in between those cells, therefore the permeability for things to slide through, like you've already explained. Mm-hmm. So the thought is then more zonulin, more intestinal permeability, aka leaky gut, more issues. Mm-hmm. So in this paper, um, they ended up, you know, they do a really good job at, at setting the stage and talking about, uh, you know, how they started getting to some of the research they ended up doing. But they took 339 type 1 diabetic patients. Uh, and because we know that type 1 diabetes has some genetic uh, component, uh, they were looking at relatives, direct relatives of those diabetic, and they looked at 89 of those. And then they ended up looking at 97 control subjects that were similar to the, the type 1 diabetic subjects. Um, so this is not an animal model study. This is not a theory like in practice or only in theory would this happen in practice type of study. This is what's happening with real people and real patients right now, mm-hmm. which I think uh, shouldn't be understated because yeah. a lot of people want to, you know, say leaky gut's not a thing because of how much it's studying animals and not enough in, in people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, and in, in pertain, pertaining to this podcast, it's directly on type one diabetics. It's not on like another autoimmune disease. This is looking mm-hmm. at uh, type one diabetics. Right. And so even, you know, 13, you know, I'm around a level 13 type one diabetic. I, I believe you are too, you know, 13 years being diabetic. And even in the two thousands, uh, they were saying how, it's yeah, there's genetic, but there's this big environmental component. And part of this quest is to say, what is that environmental component? And, and how do does environment, how does environment, not always what environment, but how does environment play a role in type one diabetes? Yeah, yeah, because um, they highlighted in the intro here. And I think it's something I think everybody should, should take note of. And because it's really important, which is um, the ob- observation that less than 10% of subjects with genetic su- susceptibility to this disease um, actually actually develop it. And um, so that kind of points at it's not a purely genetic thing. Yes, mm-hmm. genetics may play a bit of a role in it, but ultimately mm-hmm. our environment and what we put into our body and all the things that our body has to handle is going to be affecting whether we're going to be developing this disease or not. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's why part of the rise in type one diabetes diagnosis 
um, is because there is something in the environment that's going on, or rather us as individuals in the environment, mm-hmm. which is what this is connecting, this article essentially in Leaky Gut Connects, um, and, and increases the frequency of that type 1 diabetes diagnosis. I mean, my first type 1 diabetic patient got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at 69 years old. Wow. And unfortunately, he just like passed away a year or two ago. Uh, not a year or two, like a week or two ago. I don't know why I oh. said um, but he just passed away. You know, I only had a few months working with him. Um, but you know, at, even in your forties, fifties, sixties, you know, because autoimmunity is, is rising, it's, uh, it's not a scary thing, but it's, wow, what are we doing? How can we learn more and do more? Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so with it somehow environment playing a role, uh, framing the question, what is different about us? And this is where this comes in. Right. So mm-hmm. By looking at the, these patients, they essentially did three three studies, and then they talked about three di- these three different types of studies. They looked at these patients that we described, the type ones, the relatives, and the controls, and they looked at serum zonulin, so how much of that zonulin is in their blood. And then they looked at, uh, they did a urine test, then essentially measured the intestinal permeability that we'll talk about, and then we... Um, then they tried looking at genetic factors, genetic expression of the type junctions. Those are like the three things they really looked at in this paper to try to connect type one diabetes and leaky gut. Mm-hmm. So the first was a uh, serum zonulins. What was going on with that? Yeah. So serum zonulins were, um, elevated in the type one diabetes group relative to the relatives. Um, and then also, yeah. (laughs) Um, and then both the type one diabetes group and the relatives group were also elevated relative to the normal group. So, Mm -hmm. um, to put it into numbers, um, they didn't have their units on there, but, um, it was 0.85 for the type one diabetic group. Whereas the relatives group was 0.62 and then the normal group was, uh, 0.21. Mm-hmm. And so just to kind of put it into a better perspective, um, 42% of the type one diabetics were outside of two standard deviations from the normal group. So that means they were, um, there was a lot more of those type one diabetics that were much farther um, out of range in that of those onulin than um than the relatives because the relatives were only 29%. And then obviously the normals were only 4% of them were outside two standard deviations. Mm-hmm. And so uh, to put even in more layman's terms, I mean, that's stuff I, I really want to know about, but uh, to put even in more layman's terms, it's type one diabetics were actually way more had, had statistically way more zonulin in their blood um, compared to the controls and even compared to the relatives. And, and the, in the paper figure one, you know, is a beautiful, like it's just such a clear representation of them shooting up <laughs> and how many of their patients and, or, and the people that they looked at um, fall under these categories of type one diabetics with zonulin. Um, so they essentially concluded, Hey, type one diabetics have more zonulin. And we just kind of explained how zonulin has been shown to increase um, the breakdown of, of those tight junctions and therefore possibly leaky gut. So, but all they can say from that one type of study is, Type 1 diabetics in this study have more zonulin. So that's a piece of evidence, right? Mm-hmm. 
So then they looked at um, a urine test called the lactulose and mannitol test, um, which is a urine test that they essentially um, do an overnight fast. And then the patients drink a solution of lactulose and mannitol, which is a mixture and a mixture of water. So essentially they're having sugar and sugar-like sugar alcohol in a liquid, and then they're collecting the urine and seeing how much ends up in the urine. Now, um, if you think about the gut, you know, that might be confusing. Well, I thought gut equaled poop, uh, but, <laughs> but the, the body is a little more, uh, you know, complicated than that. So they're able to show still data nonetheless. Um, and they kind of describe it in the paper, how and why that ends up being relative to intestinal permeability. But in all for this purpose, we can say this urine test is equals interest intestinal permeability. So what do they find? Yeah, so um, they had increased intestinal, I mean, it was essentially they found um, very similar stuff to what they had found with the zonulin, Mm -hmm. um, where they had increased um, permeability with the type one diabetic group. um, And then a little bit increased for the relatives. Mm -hmm. um, And then obviously, the normal group um, was much less than than both. Right, right. And so it and it was still statistically significant. So the amount of lactulose to mannitol was still significant, statistically significant, which means from a stats and like that's that phrase is like a scientific like gold standard. If you don't have your data statistically significant, it's like it's not really worth talking about. Yeah. Um, so their data is worth talking about that they had higher intestinal permeability through this test in the type one diabetic population. Um, but what was interesting is that in that ratio. Um, there was way more lactulose than mannitol. And in the test, the more lactulose you have ends up being more uh, paracellular breakthrough compared to transcellular. So what that means is paracellular is um, the lactulose gets through in between the cells versus mannitol, which was transcellular, would break through the cells and kind of go through literally, if you think of a cell as a square, would go straight down the middle and just kind of almost uh, like a red rover red rover uh said mannitol right over kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> and uh and but there was more paracellular or more lactulose um than mannitol so which is, ends up correlating in the hypothesis of how leaky gut and tight junction breakdown ends up happening which i thought was an interesting part that they were included in the paper mm-hmm. that being said you know they were they took that data and then they took the zonulin data and then they essentially tried making a correlation graph and they plotted these two things against one another. And they were able to show that the urine test and the serum zonulin showed a significant coefficient of correlation, meaning there was a correlation between the type one diabetics and these subjects that they tested of how much zonulin you had and then how much lactose and ma- or lactulose and mannitol they had in their urine, which was, you know, that point in itself is really important because it's one thing to say, okay, high zonulin. They also had high lactulose, but uh, you know, when you put them together and there's still a significant correlation between the two, now we can start connecting dots from an evidence perspective, which is really, really important. Yeah. 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 Two parameters that indicate, you know, intestinal permeability and they're both showing the same essential correlation. The data is very similar. Right. So you know, that takes a lot of weight, I think, as then as practitioners for us, you know, and 
Because what we have to do as practitioners is we see something, we see if it's legit or not. And then if it's safe, you know, and then, and there's enough data to support it, which this is just one paper, there's multiple other types of stat, data out there to say, can we act on this? But when you start to combine, like you just said, these things, we can really um, increase our confidence in, in some of these correlations between one another. Mm -hmm. So the last thing they looked at in this paper then was uh, the tight junction gene expression, uh, which essentially was a dud, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, because they did find some upregulation and some downregulation and other, um, but they, there was nothing there that was actually statistically significant, uh, which would have helped the case even more. But when you look at the, when you start to think about, okay, a bigger physiology and organ perspective versus a cellular gene expression and epigenetic expression, those are two very different things, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think it makes sense. And it's not that big of a downfall that they didn't have any data for the, the tight junction expression. What were your thoughts on, on that part of the paper? Yeah, I mean, it come to me, it made sense that ultimately the gene expression part wasn't as big of a player um, in the whole process. And it seems like um, that kind of helps the the notion or the thought process of, okay, let's, let's not necessarily focus on the genes themselves. Let's try and focus on what's affecting maybe the genes or maybe just affecting this whole process of the increased zonulin and trying to figure out why that is increased and why that may be causing that scenario. Mm -hmm. So that being said, I mean, what does this all look like and, and clinically, you know, and, and what's the, what's the point of all this? And, you know, we get to this end of the paper and say, okay, cool. There might be more zonulin, more intestinal permeability in type one diabetic patients, but so what? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So ultimately it's about figuring out, like I said, why is that zonulin increased and what can we do to help reduce that and reduce the intestinal permeability? And so, um, I mean, it doesn't get into it in this paper as far as what causes the zonulin to increase. It's just showing kind of the correlation of, of zonulin and, and that going on. But um, there has been studies on, you know, general leaky gut and some things that cause it. And so it's about identifying those triggers and identifying what is causing leaky gut. And for each person, that is going to be different, unfortunately, which is the sucky thing about health and the human body and being a doctor is trying to figure out why this person is in this position and why their body is doing what it is doing. Because ultimately the body is trying to heal itself, is trying to do the right thing. Um, but we have to make the right choices as practitioners, as patients um, throughout our day and in, in our lives to help make sure our body can function at its best capacity. And so um, we have to look at what, what are the most common things and what are the things that are impacting you? So obviously diet, is a huge component of what's going on in the gut. Because if you have a lot of inflammation in the, in the gut, that's typically, typically going to lead to more of that leaky gut scenario. Um, and so inflammation is just a broad term. And there's a lot of things that can cause inflammation. But I will say in my practice, I find that the large majority of inflammation in people's bodies comes from what they're putting in their mouth. Mm -hmm. Um and part of the reason for that is because, you know, 60 to 80%, depending on what study you look at, of your immune system is located in your gut. 
and in that gut lining. So if you're bringing stuff in that your body doesn't like, then you're going to be causing a lot more inflammation and triggering a lot more um, things going on there. Right. And so to connect a few more dots, uh, you know, inflammation, immune system. So your immune system is what literally creates the signals of inflammation. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not good. And we've talked about this on the podcast before. It's not good nor bad. It just is by itself. But when you Mm -hmm. have it chronically, that's an issue. And in fact, inflammation is a good thing in an acute scenario. Uh, but when you have it too long, it starts creating havoc uh, in your gut. And if you have most of your immune system in your gut, and that's chronically sending signal what you're eating, sending signals to your immune system to create inflammation, that's that's a pretty big issue. So uh, they didn't talk about this too much in the paper. They did in their discussion, uh, but I don't think there's any point in repeating somebody else's like summation thoughts, of, yeah. of, of thoughts, right, <laughs> uh, on this type of podcast. If you want to read it, you can. We'll probably link it um in the podcast notes but uh you know how does all right so you've got leaky gut so what's the issue then if you have leaky gut to your immune system and inflammation you know what's that connection there yeah yeah so furthering our story of how we're getting from leaky gut to type 1 diabetes is when you have things leaking through that barrier and being exposed to your immune system there your immune system like i said before it says hey you're not supposed to be here get out of here. We're going to try and kill you now. And when that starts occurring over and over and more frequently, more frequently, um, your immune system kind of goes, you know, into attack mode and just wants to attack anything that looks even remotely foreign. Um, because it's just, there's so much coming at it that it's not used to not used to seeing. And so, um, a lot of those things that are getting in, whether that's from the diet or other things, sometimes can look enough alike some of your tissues in your body and therefore your immune system will start attacking those specific tissues because it looks it looks enough like a foreign invader that was coming in and so it's like hey you're not supposed to be here either and we're going to start attacking you as well yeah so essentially with the walls breaking down the bounce are gone the junction's bigger more permeability allows more things up. And that's when that immune system interacts with it and starts mm-hmm. doing that attack. So if you have more permeability, more bigger things to get through. And so, so when you eat, ultimately, a lot of that should be going into your body anyways. Mm-hmm. However, if it doesn't have the proper amount of time to digest, you know, if it doesn't make it through enough of your intestines, if it's not, you don't have enzymes, you know, whatever have be, you know, if that molecule that's not ready to go to your body is allowed to go there through this this breaking and the bouncer is not there to interact with your immune system and start attacking it that's the biggest issue so for argument's sake you could eat a hot dog and a hot dog is a bad example for you because you're going to just shake your head at it (laughs) but if you are able to have a hot dog without any inflammation that's because you're supposed to digest it fully and properly and all its components, I don't know why I'm thinking about hot dogs, probably because baseball is back, but all the components of the hot dog uh, should be broken down and transported through the intestinal wall and then into your blood at a size and shape where your immune system doesn't think of it as foreign. And then if it does, that's because it's too big. And so what's going on? This isn't, this isn't a hot dog bun. This is something crazy. And it's just a hot dog bun, but bigger. But, but yeah. your immune system doesn't know that. It just thinks about it in parts. 
Yeah. Yeah. So essentially to kind of sum that up, essentially when you're digesting your food, it should be getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller mm-hmm. um, via enzymes and chewing and all that stuff until it's at those amino acids. And essentially you're going to be absorbing those smaller components like amino acids in, and that's what's supposed to get in. So if you're digesting really well, and you even have maybe some leaky gut, but it's still at that small component. Well, your immune system wants that. So it's going to take that in and it's not going to think anything of it. But if you're getting things that are coming through that are bigger, like bigger proteins that are multiple amino acids long that aren't supposed to be coming in, your immune system is like, hey, this isn't supposed to be here. And now we're going to start attacking it. Right. So all right. Well, that's fine. We let's say somebody listens to this and accepts this, right? Or we tell this to our patients, like, makes sense. But where does it, how does the autoimmunity happen? You know, where are my immune system attacks it? It is foreign. It's not supposed to be there. So mm-hmm. it tries to tag it to get destroyed. So I, you know, somebody might think, how does that lead to type one diabetes? You know, what, what makes, what's that connection then? Yeah. So there's, there's a couple different hypotheses out there. Mm-hmm. I think the one that I, think about the most or where I use it the most as far as describing to patients is kind of the molecular mimicry um, where essentially your immune system starts thinking or it looks. So let's say we have a piece of hot dog that comes in um, that's bigger than it should be. (laughs) I got, I got gravy talk about hot dogs. (laughs) Continue. Um, So a piece of hot dog that comes in that's bigger than it should be and your immune system starts attacking it. So it's creating um, antibodies and antigens, um, or sorry, antibodies against that. And so now those antibodies are going to be triggering anything that looks remotely like that um, to for your immune system to start attacking. So for different people, that's different systems. For us as type 1 diabetics, that ends up being our uh, pancreas. So our pancreas starts to look enough like something that's getting in um, as that's your immune system is tagging it as foreign. And then it's like, okay, we got to start attacking this now because this isn't supposed to be here anymore. Mm -hmm. And so then you actually then develop those antibodies for that tissue. Mm -hmm. So you have a hot dog and this is all, you know, an example. Um, there is no study that says hot dog leads to beta cell, (laughs) pancreatic islet cell antibodies, (laughs) but, uh, maybe there is, I don't know. Um, but maybe maybe the bun part, (laughs) (laughs) um so you have the antibodies to the bun and then the bun looks like the beta cells and then your your memory cells the memory part of your adaptive immune system um then starts to create more antibodies that look like that which end Mm -hmm. up being that tissue type um you know so maybe i already said you know pancreatic um islet cell antibodies and then Mm -hmm you start having those more and more. And then you have these antibodies that your immune system will see and start to get tagged and start to attack those tissue types. Um, So there's actually an animal study article that came out, I believe in like June, July of 2019 um, that we won't talk about, but it, but we can link it. Um, It actually had all these steps in an animal model of leaky gut, intestinal permeability, and then upregulation of immune system and antibodies and type one diabetes all in the same paper of, of mice and rats. And it was like, it was funny. Cause I literally saw it. I think the day after it came out without an alert, I was just like, no, oh, yeah. I'm just reading anyways. And then I was like, 
this was yesterday <laughs> and it was just kind of fun mm-hmm. um but anyway so so that's that's the step and that's the thought is that with more intestinal permeability your immune system will be up higher and with a more um agitated and aggravated immune system the likelihood of autoimmunity and in this case type 1 diabetes is higher mm-hmm. yep yeah so then the question becomes being how do we get this immune system to calm back down and how do we or and how do we maybe even prevent it from getting to that point right so uh and the age-old question uh, you know did you eat yourself you know does what you <laughs> eat lead to the diagnosis of type 1 diabetes you know and and these questions are, you know, interesting to ask and think about. Um, so, yeah, what you eat affects your gut, affects your immune system, and therefore possibly diabetes. You know, there isn't like we're not saying that uh, you can eat your way out of diabetes. We're not saying sugar is the reason why you're type one diabetic in this mechanism of type one diabetes. But man, all the data does suggest that what you eat affects your gut, and that affects your immune system. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So again, back to my burst, my beta cells from a few podcasts ago about mm-hmm. eating whatever I want and I just have to take insulin. Um, yeah, that doesn't work so well when your immune system's involved. Right. Cause when people ask that question, you know, and I see that this is, yeah, I feel like we're getting more and more against the diabetic, the common type one community on, on social media uh, of saying like, you know, does your what you eat cause type 1 diabetes? No. But maybe. Yeah. You know, and obviously that phrase is like I said relevant to how much sugar someone like that's what people think. Yeah. But it's 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 way more complicated than that. And you know, to your burst to your burst your beta cells reminiscing on that, it's you know, should you can you eat it or should you eat it? Or yeah. you know, is it possible or is it not possible? You know, it's it, it's out there, you know, and because of the the data that's out there, and I, I want to remind everyone who's who's been sticking around to this episode, the article we discussed, you know, for 10, 15, 20 minutes was the Diabetes Journal from the American Diabetes Association. Mm-hmm. Like this, and I don't know why it's not talked about enough in hospitals and, and, and dietitians, diabetes educators. Maybe it is. That's not our profession. You know, maybe diabetes, diabetes educators um, these days are talking about leaky gut, you know, that'd be awesome if they were, when we were diagnosed, they weren't talking about it. Oh no. Even that this paper was out by then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so it's, uh, this is, this is something that is le- legitimate and worth discussing. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I wish it, I mean, I wish it was discussed more in the mainstream, um, mm-hmm. whether it be the medical field and just the type one diabetic community in general, because um, it can really open your eyes to what maybe is actually possible with this condition. Because um, after learning about all this stuff um, and and how it's affecting your immune system and how your immune system is obviously a player in autoimmune diseases, it's like holy crap! Like, could I reverse what's going on right now? Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, it comes down to what got me here and what got my immune system here. Um, and ultimately that is a very complex question. Um, but one of the biggest um, answers in that equation is your diet. And so that's kind of where your foundation is. So if your diet um, is promoting health, 
then you're going to be much more well off. If it's not promoting health, um, then it's going to be a lot harder to, um, to get better function. So I think you had some interesting personal experience of, uh, have you tried to reverse your own diabetes, Grady? I have. You tried. And I still am. I still am. I still, I still have hopes that, oh, wow. um, that I can figure it out. Mm. Um, because normally I'm, 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 <laughs> normally I'm the hopeful one. <laughs> um, cause I haven't tried everything and there's still a lot of things that I have to work through, um, with getting my body functioning better. And, uh, but ultimately there was a point where, um, I was, I was doing some intermittent fasting and, um, my diet was, relatively the same meat and vegetables and um but i was getting to a point where i didn't have to take insulin for um like 12 hours 16 hours i think my longest without insulin was like 22 hours i think um and my blood sugar was you know perfect throughout that whole time it wasn't like i just took it off and Mm -hmm. you know accepted the consequences um that was with eating too yeah Yep. And so that was with eating and, um, obviously it was very low carb, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was a pretty, um, opening experience and like a very freeing experience. Um, and then it all got derailed when I went on a mission trip to El Salvador for That's chiropractic right. and I got a parasitic infection and then mm. it all, all went down the drain. That's right. That's right. Uh, I forgot about that part of why it ended. Um, but you were actually measuring um, at that time, you were measuring your C-peptide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were interested in seeing, uh, th- I don't know why this marker is not measured in blood enough of type 1 diabetics, type 2 diabetics. Um, in short, C-peptide is a marker in your blood uh, that measures directly how much insulin you are creating in your pancreas. Mm-hmm. And so as type 1s, um, there's like, little to none, like barely anything there. Sometimes it'll say like not readable on, on the, on the blood lab. Um, but if you're type two and you had insulin resistance, you might have a high C peptide where type ones, um, have a much lower. So, mm-hmm. but you're actually measuring it and you saw it didn't like go up a lot. Right. But it did go up a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't have a previous, um, oh, that's right. I didn't have a previous one to compare it to, yeah. um, but it was, I mean, it wasn't unreadable, so there I was producing some. It wasn't at the um, normal range at all, but um, but there was some there. But at the same time, like I like I said, I was doing intermittent fasting and um, low carb. So I also kind of wonder how how much that affected things too, because my body didn't need to produce a lot of insulin, or it wasn't getting a lot of stimulation to produce insulin because I wasn't bringing a lot of sugar in. Mm-hmm. Um, so that may play a role in it as well. Um, but ultimately it still wasn't, wasn't enough for, um, you know, fully getting off of insulin, but, mm-hmm. um, it, it made me hopeful. And, um, and that's why I think I still haven't given up on it yet is because I had such a, a good experience in the past and feel like I can get back to that and maybe hopefully find the missing pink piece to, uh, get me over that hump. Sure. So let's, uh, let's, I want to just take a second to protect your behinds a little bit right now. <laughs> so we're not saying that you can fast your way. Yeah, don't. <laughs> we're not. We are not saying that Grady 
reverses diabetes and we're not making any claims that you actually can we're posing the question is it possible and like you said it's complicated that's the like answer right it's complicated mm-hmm. is really the answer um but uh, and you haven't given up hope because some of the things you've seen and you've been you were essentially working with yourself mm-hmm. as a patient and a doctor and you have all this knowledge so uh please do not and we are not encouraging anyone just to start experimenting on yourselves to see how long you could go without insulin and think you can just not have diabetes because type one is as a condition and when those beta cells are gone it's it's a huge, huge, huge obstacle to um, navigate through, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I myself, I've, I don't, I don't think I can. If somebody asked me, is type one diabetes diversible, diversible, reversible? <laughs> is type one diabetes reversible? My answer would pretty much be no. However, there is a honeymoon phase, mm-hmm. uh, right? And when you're still producing a lot of insulin and there's still beta cell function. Um, so if there were any possibility in my mind, based on the research of what I've read to really have hope, if you catch somebody in that window and go and help their, look at their gut, look at their immune system and target those while being responsible and making sure people have healthy blood sugar levels, um, that is much more reasonable in my mind. And I think that's a much more uh, worth attempt, um, of seeing what, what's possible and, and can, someone who's going down that down the type one diabetes route, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've heard of some functional medicine doctors that um, have been able to either stop it or, you know, in some ways reverse it in that early phase. Um, it seems like it's much easier. I'll say um, in that phase to, you know, mm-hmm. catch it while, while it's kind of developing. Um, Cause once you've gotten so far um, the immune system is, is a hard thing to change. So, right. um, so there's a lot, a lot more that goes into it at that point. Um, but yeah, I think, I think if you're, um, you know, getting, or if you're in that honeymoon phase or, um, you know, somebody that may be getting into it or has a possibility of it, you may look at some of these things in the, in the functional medicine world, gut health, um, and some of the things that we're going to be talking about, as far as trying to mitigate any, you know, um, risk and or just um, confusion by that immune system. So optimizing your immune system function um, is going to is going to be what you want to focus on. Mm-hmm. So in reality, we're not saying you treat the diabetes. We're seeing, hey, what normal physiology can we restore? Mm-hmm. That's really the goal. And that's really how it should be thought about is yeah. what normal gut physiology can be restored what normal immune physiology can be restored and in a day and age where everyone's talking about the immune system you know i think we need to think about the immune system differently in all conditions Mm -hmm. and and what's really going on so you know diet is the first place to start lifestyle is the first place to start you know and and doing it with a, a practitioner who has studied and worked with people in this way is key and making sure you're always being safe down that road, but anybody can just start changing their diet in mm-hmm. any way. Right. Yeah. And so um, you were eating mostly uh, meat and veggies. Uh, I've heard people just only eating meat. I've heard people only eating veggies and some fruits um, and then some being more omni, just being smart with how they um, use combination of all these things. You know, mm-hmm. it's, 
And so, like you said, it's so individualized, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's no cookie cutter approach. There's no one way to this. This is what is your immune system? What is your gut health? What reacts, what makes it react so poorly? And then going from there. Yep. Yep. And then beyond diet, there's a lot of other things that can be affecting your immune system. Um, so things like environmental toxins, whether that's something in the air, something being something in your water, something exposed on your skin or your hair, all those things play a role in how your immune system is reacting because one, those things your immune system can react to. And at the same time, those things can really clog up your liver because your liver has to try and detoxify those things. And when your liver gets really bogged down, then that can really affect your immune system as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, heavy metal exposure um, and subclinical infections. Like I talked about that parasitic infection that got me that really threw things off my immune system kind of went haywire again and, and mm-hmm. threw it all off. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of things to think about. And so, I think foundationally starting with the diet, like we said, is something that everybody can do and everybody can play with um, relatively safely. Um, but ultimately, when it comes down to really, you know, picking through it with a with a fine comb and finding out what for you is the thing that's really triggering your immune system is, is going to come down to, um, you know, a practitioner that really knows what they're doing and, and knows how to search for those things. And mm-hmm. not saying that you... Um, like I said, not saying you're, you're going to reverse these things, but ultimately, if you can help your immune system out, you're going to function much better. Right. And at the very least, your blood sugar is going to be much easier to control. Right. Which ultimately, you know, cause I've really, that's how I've shifted my thinking more. What will make my blood sugar more easy, more easily controlled? What makes it more stable? What conditions can I create that allows me to do that? Because for me, you know, I'm not as disciplined as, as you um, doing some of the things, you know, it's, I'm having a hard time getting back on intermittent fasting. Um, ever since I started running a lot, in fact, um, I think it was this date last year, I finished my last marathon, um, you know, and, but ever since then, I've been eating pretty moderate amount of carbs, uh, you know, and so um, where was I going with this, uh, you know, but the idea of reversing or trying to really decrease the amount or reversing diabetes in my mind is is gone but how better can i make my blood sugar manageable um what immune system what immune state can i be and how healthy can my immune system be how healthy can my gut be what really affects my gut um are the questions that that i ask myself that i encourage others to ask um and if you get a cool result like you were seeing it has to be even better mm-hmm. <laughs> but um that's on the list of possibilities but that's not what i would hang my my hat on um, so it's, but not saying it's not possible. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, this study and, and this thought process is something that should be encouraging as far as if you're going to put your faith in a quote unquote cure, I think this is something you want to pursue, yeah. um, versus tr- waiting around and seeing if they come up with a cure in the medical field. Cause ultimately I'm sorry to say it not likely at all because there's not going to be one thing that's going to fix every person with type one diabetes. Right. Like we said in this kind of this whole podcast, there's a lot of different things that come into play with this. And so if you're expecting one pill or one shot or one injection or whatever is going to fix your diabetes, I'm sorry, but 
that's that's just not going to happen. Yeah. You got to figure out why your body is doing what it's doing, and then try and and make that uh, better. Right. Exactly. So it's uh, and some of the technology is really cool. Like the idea, like the main reason type one diabetes is a thing is because you don't have no more beta cells, you don't have insulin, there's no regulation of negative and positive feedback loops to control your blood sugar levels. Um, so the thought would be, and what a lot of the technology is, is trying to figure out how do we regrow beta cells. And if we have more beta, if we get beta cell restoration, you know, type one diabetes should be good to go. And they've, you know, the injections and kind of encapsulated ways of growing beta cells are really interesting studies. But my question is then, all right, well, do you still have the antibodies? Yeah. Will your, will your immune system still attack it? You know, how long will those last? And, you know, if they can overcome some of those things, cool, but there's still other parts of those questions that likely aren't answered until we go down those roads. And, and this is the most conservative, the most close to your body is that functioning normally anyways. Um, and so that should be, and something we can do literally starting within a second, you know, you can start saying right now, I'm going to make these changes opposed to waiting, like you said, for mm -hmm. a year. Cause, um, I'm all, I support, um, ADDA and JDRF and, you know, but I've not gone home about, well, let's find a cure. I'm like, let's find technologies that make it easier to control. You know, mm -hmm. Dexcom, closed loop systems, um, mini meds, closed loop, you know, these things are huge in, in creating a life that's much better for type one diabetic. That's what I really want to encourage people to really look at these companies for uh, not so much, you know, oh, there's going to be a cure in your lifetime because yeah. you hear that too many times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The other kind of motivation for adopting this kind of lifestyle and this pursuit is not only uh, can you make your type 1 diabetes better or easier to control, but at the same time, you mitigate the risk of possibly developing another autoimmune condition. Right. Um, because it's very common for if you have one autoimmune condition, you likely will develop another autoimmune condition, especially mm -hmm. if you continue doing the same things that you were doing leading mm -hmm. up to that first autoimmune condition. Because um, all the things that lead to one auto autoimmune condition likely going to lead to another one. Cause you're, like I said, your immune system is like attacking anything that looks foreign. If you're getting enough things in that look foreign, they may start mistaking your tissues for something that's foreign. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the second most uh, common autoimmunity for type one diabetic is Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And I think mm -hmm. pretty sure that's the most common autoimmunity in, in the United States. Anyways, uh, I, I need to double check those stats. I have those saved somewhere um but you know i have tpo antibodies which is but doesn't mean yeah i have the antibodies but as long as my immune system stays in control and i continue to work on my gut health and con consistently that consistent effort of experiment okay that was too much let's let's go back you know mm -hmm. um, the consistent of what's really going on and how can i keep myself healthy you know that's really going to determine the antibodies don't determine your immune system activity is what determines those things. And yeah, likelihood of you having more than one is once you get one and that's for anything. If you already have RA, chances of you having another autoimmunity once you have rheumatoid arthritis is higher because you already have one. You know, this this is just a pattern of all autoimmunity. Mm -hmm. Yep. So um, I actually once got in a 
pleasant discussion uh, with an uh, endocrinologist once. I might have told this story on the podcast before. I can't remember. Um, if he looks at my blood work and he looks at my TPO and opposed to saying TPO antibodies and opposed to saying, you know, what can we do? Like the discussion we're having here today, what can we do to make sure it doesn't happen? He just, oh, you're going to take thyroid medication later in your life. Like just, that was the first thought. He saw my blood work and he's like, oh, you're just be prepared. And, wow. I, and, I, and I got pretty offended, especially yeah. at that point as a, as a future practitioner at that point uh, of taking away hope from a patient like that was pretty, um, I thought, disrespectful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, what can I do today? You know, it's, we've talked about this before. Once you look at yourself and say, you know, I have the, the power in my body, in my hands to, to be healthy. Some might see that as scary. Wow. That means every decision I make makes the condition worse. Well, the blunt truth of that is, yeah, that's correct. But the hopeful truth of that is every decision you make can influence the condition. And mm-hmm. so if you, uh, you know, find the resource and it's not easy, you know, it's, you know, finding the right team and, you know, then we can get in bigger conversations of who has those opportunities. And that's probably a much bigger scope of, of conversation than, than this, uh, uh, podcast because that can go in economic factors and and so many so many disparities going on to that i mean how we talked about the price of insulin a couple of times and we haven't even had a real conversation on the podcast about that at this mm-hmm. point but uh you know who the point being is yeah you what you do has negative impacts but what you do has positive impacts too it's you you yourself have given up hope on your on you and mm-hmm. I don't look at that myself, you know, that I don't like, I'm trying to not do these things for, for the similar motivations you are. doesn't mean that I'm not happy and I'm motivated to, to make my life better and healthier. And, and those who I work with, I feel like feel the same. All the patients that I work with, uh, you know, I always try to inspire hope. And then if you have hope that change is way easier to make than it without it being there. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. So that being said, we talked about hope. Let's bust it down. <laughs> let's bust down the hell what's been bursting your beta cells grady oh man let's see i got one on, on go deck. for it all right so um so what's been bursting my beta cells and I, again it's this whole insurance racket and so i had insurance changed not too long ago and now it's time i, I had a um, stock supply, um, that I've been weaning through, um, and saving money. Cause I ordered a little too. I mean, never, how many people that use pumps use more reservoirs than they do infusion sets or, or, or vice versa, rather they use more infusion sets. So you have a stock of reservoirs, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I was just going through my supply, um, and now it's time to order. So I call my new insurance to say what's covered, what's not. And I had a long list. Is Dexcom covered? Yes or no. What medical supplier should I go through? Give me the names, numbers, whatever else. And then I got started asking about pump supplies. And then he was like, I was like, okay, so I know you cover Dexam. I know you cover Medtronic. Uh, what a, and I assume it's co- the supplies are covered, but I want to make sure. What about the Medtronic reservoirs, whatever? And he goes, well, sir, since these are covered, you know, um, it should be good. And he was referring to Dexcom. I was like, no, I need to know the supplies. What are those covering? And he just, I could tell he was getting frustrated because this was like 15 minutes on the phone. <laughs> Only 15 yeah. And, and he says, well, you, sir, you probably need to go to your doctor, get the CPT code, um, have them look it up and let, let you know. And I literally paused like, you want me to do your job for you right now? <laughs> okay, I'll go on Google. And I Googled 
Medtronic Reservoir CPT code. And so for all those um, out there, a CPT, CPT code is essentially a uh, code for insurance purposes of therapies or um, you know medications. It's a number associated with something to get reimbursed by insurance companies, more mm-hmm. or less, right? And so I just looked up CPT code for these things. And I said, why don't you check A3529, whatever. And looked at the, yep, that's covered. And then, so we kept going on. Very nice guy. But if I just accepted that at that moment, it would have hung up the phone, been on the hold with my hospital for five, 10 minutes, talked to somebody. They would be probably confused. They would look it up. It would have been another two hour process. Mm-hmm. And so I like, I know that insulin in the back of my head. So I'm talking to this guy, finish all my questions. And it ends up being like a 40 minute conversation for this first stage of calls. And I haven't even done my other stage of calls of contacting the medical suppliers yet. But I said, you, you know, sir, you've been really great. However, if you took a little bit more energy and just literally Googled, cause that's what I did and asked a little more questions about what I wanted you to Google, you could have looked up this answer. Cause I know, you know, this information and I only know it because of my, my career. Cause I am too, you know, a physician and somebody who isn't that would have spent two hours and you would have wasted somebody's two hours of their life. And that's for not five right. minutes, for yeah. five, not even, yeah. you know? And I, and I said, I thought respectfully, but in a way that I, hopefully he, he, he got, I mean, everyone has bad days, whatever, but yeah, just when you always spend so much time figuring out how to pay for diabetes on the phone for diabetes, trying to figure out your supply, there's just so much extra stuff to get to for someone to just say, Oh, call your doctor and find out when you can have the bill. It just, it really bursts my beta cells and so that's was that that was this week, and that really burst my beta cells again. Just the whole insurance game is just a, a too much of a racket than it needs to be. Yeah. Well, let's give you a hand of applause for being an advocate for not only yourself but for future people asking those questions. I will that- be here all week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that made me that made me feel good. Um, your response to him, um, because I mean it's it's already frustrating trying to talk to them and then when they can't even really do their own job and you got to do it for them i mean that's just even more frustrating oh yeah Um, luckily i mean the insurance company i have or at least the guy that i talked to last time and we had to figure a whole bunch of stuff out he was really good about he even like called um the pharmacy while i was still on the phone and and went through that whole process with me Mm -hmm. um so that was really nice but yeah um, it can be really, fr- especially after you've already waited on hold for, uh, for however long, like hours at a time, sometimes. Absolutely. It's, it's not worth it's, it's so everything about insurance is built and designed to, to save the insurance company money. Mm-hmm. It's not meant to give you the care that you're trying to seek out. Um, fundamentally it is for profit. Yep. Um, and there are so many things and we, I don't want, even want to go on an insurance rant right now, but in my office, you know, in terms of my chiropractic practice, we are in so many insurances, and I've learned lots of frustrating things about a lot of different insurances. And sometimes they don't even know how their stuff works. And, (laughs) and I do, and I have to explain why I know it. And, you know, it's, so it's, it's way too frustrating. And anybody out there, um, you're not alone. And so we, everything, everyone agrees, it's messed up. Yeah. I'm glad that you had a good advocate for your, your policy. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mine, mine is not quite as intense as yours, but my burst, my beta cells is when you get into the shower and that's when you realize that your port site is about to come off and then you got to hold it the whole time you're in the shower. Otherwise <laughs> yeah. it's going to come off because of the water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Too much, too much good pressure. Too much yeah. good water pressure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're, hold, you're holding it on and, and the water's going down your body and you, and you don't want it to go in. So you hold, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That happened to me this morning and I'm like, yeah. gosh, now, now I got to like shower with one hand and then yeah just just annoying yeah it's one it's one part of uh diabetes that only again only diabetics would know yeah <laughs> you know like that's so <laughs> you just met a random type one diabetic on the street and said hey how many times has, has your pump thing almost fallen off in the shower and yeah. they're just laughing up sure uh because we've been there <laughs> oh yeah and yeah, then that is kind of burst my beta cells for sure so right on so I uh, appreciate everyone for listening to this discussion. Hopefully we took a concept that can be confusing or new and explain it in a way that made sense. And that's from the American Diabetes Association itself. Um, and if you guys have any questions about these type of things, let us know uh, via social media or uh, email or whatever. Appreciate anyone who already messages us because we always have fun interacting with y'all um, privately as well. And so we also, or we're starting to experiment with, um, with clubhouse so we may or may not do some uh some die buddy stuff on, on clubhouse so if you're all on there uh we'll probably have something I'd, i don't even know how it works i just got on it so <laughs> so but it's a it's a voice um only social media app and so it, i think it might allow us to have almost like live q a podcasts or just live interaction podcasts um so we'll figure out i don't know but if you're on there uh let us know And so with all that being said, uh, hope everyone has a great day and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Die Buddies podcast. See you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you found value in today's conversation, we would appreciate it if you gave a five-star review. It really helps us branch out our community and get our message across to those who really need to hear it. If you want to interact with us on social media, you can follow us on the Die Buddies podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or moral outrages, you can email us at thediebuddiespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks.